I work in surveillance. And one of the things that happens is that you get people sending you handwritten letters, sometimes from jail. Some of these letters include references to mind control or aliens or Fidel Castro controlling their brain via radio waves. And this was like so many letters that I've received, right? So many people believe they have been secretly tracked with secret technology. But the difference between so many of those other letters and this one is that he was right. From WNYC, I'm Manoush Zamarodi, and this is Note to Self. Things that were laughed at 15 years ago, 20 years ago, today are actually working and working really well. Technology changes faster than we're able to adapt to it. The show where you and I find balance in the digital age. There's no law against creepiness, oddly enough. You still can make choices about the role that these technologies play. And figure out how to manage modern life. This week, surveillance and a chance to double your listening pleasure. We're collaborating with our friends down the hall at WNYC, Radio Lab. You'll get two different shows with two very different angles on what it means to live in a society where we can be constantly watched and tracked. If you heard us on Radio Lab and that's how you found us, welcome. We are a podcast about the human side of technology, and Jad will be joining us later in the show. If you haven't heard our Radio Lab episode, please check it out. We are super proud of it. But before you head over there, right here, right now, get ready for one man's story which could change the way you think about your phone and how you think about secrets. kind of a mashup between Breaking Bad mixed with Edward Snowden plus a sprinkle of Unabomber and a dash of Jason Bourne. Yeah, lots of crypto machismo. And I can't help but thinking this crazy situation would never have happened in a world run by women. But here we are. And with me is Note to Self producer reporter Alex Goldmark. Hi, Hi Alex. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Alex, you discovered the person who brought to light what might become a huge breakthrough for citizen privacy. Yep. He is who we have to thank for uncovering how we now know it is just so easy for the police or anyone really to track us using our cell phones, even listen in on us. But I'm jumping ahead. Yeah. Before we get to the tech, let's talk about the case of Daniel Rigmaiden and the Stingray. And it is just as epic as it sounds. Let's start in 2007. Daniel Rigmaiden is in his 20s, living in Northern California, not far from where he grew up in a small suburban town. Super smart, but kind of aimless. He likes to tinker on his computer on his own, and he's just not really sure where he fits in. Sometimes society gets overwhelming for someone who doesn't really uh, agree with participating. Politicians, the government, he just doesn't really believe that any of them are actually working for the people. He definitely does not buy into the system. So he fills his backpack with groceries and camping supplies, and he heads into the wilderness for weeks at a time. The Los Padres National Forest in, in uh, California, it was just kind of a way to get away from a system that I didn't agree with, I suppose. And I was just kind of taking a break from society at that point. He only comes out of the woods when he needs to buy more supplies. And his stream of income? Filing fraudulent tax returns using the identities of the deceased. Yeah, dead people. And I would come out occasionally, maybe once every three weeks to a month, to file more tax returns from hotel rooms using just a laptop computer that I had. 
and an air card that that was registered with Verizon, and it would give me internet access through cell towers. Cell towers. You'll hear why that's an important detail in a minute. So I would come out just long enough to file the returns and go to the ATM machines to withdraw the money. The most time-consuming part of the whole fake tax return scheme was just taking out the cash. You know, I basically had to go out to the ATM machines every day. I mean, sometimes I would, wouldn't be able to do it, and I would just I would actually lose money because the debit cards would get canceled by the debit card companies because they would suspect there's some type of fraud. Got to a point where there was a lot of time spent just kind of walking to ATM machines to, to get money pulled out. So his system is tiring, but it works. He is withdrawing thousands of dollars, and he is super careful. He uses fake IDs. He is always anonymous when he goes online. He uses prepaid debit cards. Daniel's scheme is solid. And it's going so well, he decides to rent an apartment in Santa Clara, California, and hunker down for one last big score. He wants to save up enough to be able to leave the country and get a fresh start. Meanwhile, he doesn't know the FBI is on his case. They trace the fraudulent tax forms back to the ATMs, and they get their hands on some grainy security camera photos. And so one afternoon, in the summer of 2008 now, Daniel leaves his apartment building to go get some lunch, and it all goes down. And I turned around and I saw this guy kind of coming after me, so I started walking faster, and he started speeding up. Daniel walks towards a strip mall near the train station. And I guess they thought I was going to the Caltrain station, but uh, I was actually just going to buy a sandwich. Daniel sees the man flag down a local police car. He's definitely FBI. Those two police officers started kind of circling around and spotted me kind of ducking behind this bush. So the local cops speed around the corner. And I took off running, and another police car joined in the chase. By the time he's nabbed, there are multiple police cars, sirens blaring, and a slew of FBI agents on the scene. Daniel's lying there, cheek on the pavement, and his brain starts trying to pinpoint just how the police were able to find him when he had such a foolproof system. The instant I was getting arrested, when I was laying on the sidewalk getting handcuffs put on me, I instantly knew that they had tracked the air card down. I mean, I just it was the only weak link in the whole operation. His cellular internet air card, the thing he used to connect to the internet to submit those tax returns. The cellular Wi-Fi card must be the weak link. And as far as he's figured, there is no way to trace one of those Wi-Fi cards to any specific person or location. So how the heck did the FBI use or tap his Wi-Fi card to figure out exactly where he was on that summer day? At this point, Daniel has some time to try and piece the mystery together. Yeah, because he's in prison. He spends all his time in the prison library focused on this, and he starts to come up with a theory. And if his theory is right, he realizes he's in a situation that maybe no other criminal had ever been in before, and one that he thinks raises huge constitutional questions, too. Yeah, but his theory makes him sound like the craziest conspiracy nut job ever. I was trying to explain these different theories to my first attorney on how the air card was located. Daniel tells his lawyer, hey, look, I think they tracked me down by sending rays into my living room that could figure out who and where I was based on the cell signal from the air card. And remember, this is late 2000s, pre-Ed Snowden. His lawyer is like, um, right, sure. Eventually, I get a letter in the mail, him telling me that he's going to withdraw from the case and not really giving me a reason why. And, you know, that was kind of the first attorney 
Daniel goes through more attorneys. A year passes. He is still hell-bent on proving that he was tracked down by some kind of secret government device. Keeping in mind that Daniel's theory has never been mentioned in any court or anywhere else, it sounds like complete crazy talk to the lawyers. So I was thinking the only way out of this would be if I represented myself, which would allow me to do the research on my own. I had unlimited time to do that kind of stuff. He asks for all the documents that he can think of asking for, anything. And then all the same knack for detail and focus and discipline that made him a good tax fraudster, it made him one hell of a good jailhouse lawyer. Eventually, he gets shipped over time 14,000 pieces of paper, and he gets down to reading every single one. Yeah, there was enough documents where whenever they moved it around, they were loading them up onto a pallet and getting a hand truck and, and pulling them around the jail. He's wading through thousands of pages of government records trying to find mention of a device that he thinks must exist. Then, an FBI file mentions something about investigative techniques regarding a cell tower. A status memo from a postal inspector? It mentions something called a stingray. A few names of companies. There's a few hints here and there. Lots of clues. But how can he piece them all together? Because, by the way, the prison library? Yeah, it doesn't have the Internet. If there was something I wanted researched further on the Internet, I'd have to get on the phone and call up the court-appointed paralegal and basically explain to him what I wanted searched on. Okay, this is my favorite part. He has to do what we're calling human-assisted Google searches to find these things that are buried deep, deep on the fringes of the web. And luckily, that court-appointed paralegal on the other end of the phone was a deep well of patience. I would tell him what to search, and he would type it in to his computer, and he would read the results back to me. And I would tell him what to click on, and eventually he'd print stuff out and mail it to me. You know, I'd circle a link and put a note, get this document next, and then I would mail it back to him. It was just a real tedious, long process as far as trying to get information. Ugh, Google search in the most analog way possible. So Daniel would see, like, an unusual serial number in a court document. Then he'd have to go back to the paralegal to search that number online, see where else it turns up. Then Daniel would ask for more documents about what he finds. It goes on and on. Eventually, all those painstaking searches and all those boxes of documents lead to a data sheet about a device that matches the mystery one he'd been hunting for. Bingo. It's something called the Stingray, made by a company in Florida that makes high-tech tools for the police and the military. He used that to find more documents about it. I mean, we're talking things like a a town council committee mentioning a debate of a new purchase or like a, a comptroller of a small city reviewing a contract. And it looks like lots of police departments around the country have this device or something like it, and they've been using it hundreds, maybe thousands of times. Daniel realizes he probably isn't the only one who got caught with a secret cell tracking device. But nobody has ever mentioned it in court before. No other criminal has ever figured it out. Until maybe now. Coming up, what exactly Daniel Rigmaiden discovered about how the FBI and police were tracking criminals down and what kind of information it scoops up on all of us. Plus Radio Lab's Jad Abumrad. On last week's Note to Self, we tried to figure out how reading on a screen is different than reading on paper and what it's doing to us. A scientist told us we have to train our brains for both kinds of reading. And some of you wrote in to say that you use that difference productively. Ryan McMichael from Leesburg, Virginia has a system that's sort of a convenient combo. 
When he goes to the library, he checks out both the ebook and the paper version. The only issue that really comes up is then syncing my position between the two, but it's a relatively minor thing. And overall, it's a pretty good method. We love these life hacks, Michael. That's so good. Keep these life hacks coming. And the other thread going about our last episode is how screen reading is changing writing. Novelist Pam Bashars used to write entire chapters in one long focus sitting. Not anymore. Now I'll write a little chunk, and then I'll jump over to another part of the chapter and write that, and I'll go backwards, and I stitch the pieces together in the end. And Marissa Gowdy is trying to figure out whether her writing style is changing for this world of hyperlinks. If we know that people are only going to be skimming something because it's appearing online, how are we writing? I think we still have to write with such a great degree of attention because you can't skim write, right? Right, Marissa. Okay, listeners, your comments and questions drive our future shows, so we'll be coming back to this. I'm eager to hear what other people out there think. Please keep the voice memos coming. Don't y'all sound good? Record them using any old voice memo app on your smartphone and then email it to note to self at WNYC.org. We've also got a post that explains exactly how to do this. If you've got any questions, just go to note to self We'll be right back. We're back. I'm Anoush Samarodi, and this is Note to Self. I'm with producer-reporter Alex Goldmark. Alex, let's pick up our story about Daniel Rigmaiden, a tax fraudster who thinks he may have uncovered secret technology being used by U.S. law enforcement. Right. So Daniel is convinced that U.S. law enforcement is using a secret something, maybe called a stingray, to track down people via their cellular devices. And he decides to get in touch with Christopher Segoyan. I am the principal technologist with the ACLU's Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project. This is a guy who pays very close attention to all the different tools that law enforcement are using. And he gets lots of letters about police surveillance, which mostly sound kind of delusional. Handwritten letters, sometimes from jail. Some of these letters include references to mind control or aliens or Fidel Castro controlling their brain via radio waves. And in 2011... I got one of these, and it was something to the effect of, the government has tracked me using a secret surveillance device that sent signals through the wall of my house. And they don't want to talk about this device. They don't want to talk about the technology. But I think you'll be interested to learn what I found. And this was like so many letters that I've received, right? So many people believe they have been secretly tracked with secret technology. But the difference between... So many of those other letters in this one is that he was right. How did he know he was right? Well, along with the letter, Daniel also sent an extremely thoroughly researched report. It must have been 200 pages, and it was meticulously written, which is even more surprising when I learned that it had been written in a jail library without an internet connection. And what he'd done is he'd collected every single publicly available source he could on stingrays and built this this argument to support the idea that the government had used this technology to find him. It was fascinating because it, it was the most well-researched memo I'd ever seen on this technology, written by a guy, you know, rotting in jail. The argument that Daniel laid out in his report completely convinced Christopher Segoyan. He was 100% spot on. The government really did send signals through the wall of his living room and, in fact, the living rooms of everyone else in his neighborhood. Uh, and they really were trying to, to keep this thing a secret. 
This thing is a cell site simulator, basically a fake cell phone tower. It can talk to any phone nearby and trick the phone into thinking it's just talking to a regular, real cell phone tower. And then from there, it can do a bunch of other things to the phone, the most important of which is locate it. They're often called by the brand name, which is Stingray, or the very technical term, MC Catcher, I-M-S-I. And either way, to use it, police start off with the unique ID of the device they're after. So the police go to Verizon and they say, where is this target? We're looking for this guy. Where is he? And Verizon says, you know, we're, we're not able to, to tell you exactly where he is, but we think he's, you know, within a mile or two of this place. This is where the Stingray comes in, and the basic principle is like the game Marco Polo. So the Stingray says Marco, and all the phones in the neighborhood respond back by saying Polo. Ping from the Stingray. Response from the phone. Ping from the Stingray. Response from the phone. Hey, are you there? Yeah, I'm over here. The police will show up there with their special surveillance van, which probably won't say surveillance van on the outside, and they will start to drive around that neighborhood with the Stingray turned on and with this antenna mounted on the roof. And it'll start to send out these signals. And they'll drive it around until eventually the phone responds to, to their, their Marco signals. Then it's just a matter of moving in. Listen for the pings, drive even closer. Listen again, move in closer until you end up right on a doorstep. It's extremely useful. It's like a genie in a bottle. You rub the device and ask it where someone is and they tell you where they are. It's, it's extremely powerful. The military and intelligence communities designed them that way. Chris Segoyan says stingrays are attached to drones that fly over Yemen and Somalia. They're on the roofs of U.S. embassies. Used to pick up the phone calls of Angela Merkel and other interesting people. These devices are in the president's motorcade and protect him from IED attacks and alert the Secret Service to people who shouldn't be near the president. The government has this powerful genie in a bottle of a secret weapon to fight crime. But here's the thing. The side effect? It also scoops up data on all the other innocent cell phones in the area. Everyone else saying, polo, polo, ping, ping, ping. Law enforcement and the companies that make the technology certainly didn't want the public to know that they were using it. Look, in a perfect United States, when we have privacy trade-offs like this, we're supposed to talk about it as a society. We're supposed to write up laws and rules and regulations. In this case, though, that would defeat the very purpose. And this is sort of this fundamental question, this fundamental issue that comes up in many, many areas of surveillance, which is the agencies that use these technologies believe that the more people who know about them, the easier it will be for targets to evade surveillance. Which is probably true, because if they know about how a stingray works, they'll just take the batteries out of their phone or laptop. So the government has set up a crazy catch-22 in the legal system around stingrays. If you're a criminal defendant and you figure out that the government used a stingray in your case, you just won, you just won the lottery, basically. So you just won the lottery because the police will probably drop your case rather than divulge that they've been using a stingray to catch you. And in fact, they may even be required to drop the case. I actually got a hold of a non-disclosure agreement from the FBI sent to an upstate New York police department. It said, you have to sign this if you are going to get a stingray. Okay, here's one of the clauses. It, it essentially says, you cannot disclose publicly how a stingray works. Not anywhere, not even in court. When we asked the FBI about this, a spokesperson emailed us back, writing, To date, the FBI has not required any agency to dismiss their case based on this provision in the NDA. 
and about how stingrays can scoop up information on innocent cell phones, too. This is what he wrote back. The FBI purges its cell site simulators at the end of each operation and does not retain third-party cellular information incidentally collected in the process of locating or identifying the targeted cellular device. But the FBI is just one agency. U.S. Marshals also use these local police, sheriff's departments, lots of agencies. Yeah, and the spokesman also wrote, Certainly I am speaking here only of the FBI's use of cell site simulators. I cannot comment on any state or local law enforcement use. Hope this helps. I like that he added that, Alex. It did help. And as for Daniel Rigmaiden, thanks in large part to him. Now if you Google the word stingray, You get a handful of articles that are explaining this device. You'll also get marine biology photos and tributes to the crocodile hunter. But yes, stingray technology turns up also. But when Rigmaiden started searching, there was no reporting on this. All of the news coverage of this, all of the briefs from the ACLU about stingrays, they are all because Daniel Rigmaiden found that name on the 13,000th piece of paper in the prison law library. That is the reason. Otherwise, every mention of it might have stayed sealed, just like it had for years before, and pretty much mostly stays sealed now. But Alex, let's just remember, even if he is a tech transparency hero to some, Daniel Rigmaiden was guilty of tax fraud. Yes, he is a convicted felon, and he knows it. He ended up pleading guilty and taking time served after about five years in prison while fighting his case. And now he's struggling to get by financially because... Businesses aren't so keen to hire a convicted fraudster or let him anywhere near any financial information of any customer. You can't blame them really. No, and he doesn't either. But he is an ace legal researcher. And as part of his guilty plea, he also got sentenced to community service, so some of which he did at a soup kitchen and the rest interning at the ACLU teaching them about stingrays. <laughs> of course. And since Daniel is something of an expert in cell site simulators now, he's found himself being asked to consult for lawyers and even for legislatures. Washington state recently passed a bill requiring a warrant before a stingray can be used. Daniel helped the author of the bill write some of the language. So he started out wanting to drop out of society, and now he's writing policy. If I can't completely step away from it, then I suppose I have to join in and do what I can to change it and and make it better. So it's something that I can deal with more as I move on. It's kind of how I see it now. Okay, so listeners, those are the facts. And now someone else has joined us in the studio, my colleague and friend, Radio Lab's Jad Abumrad. Are we colleagues? I mean, we are colleagues. Are we friends? Come on, I man. think we're, we're friends. friends. No, it's good. I, I just I feel a, I felt a sense of warmth when you said that. <laughs> good. Uh, hello. I'm glad to hear that. Hello. So I mean, we're definitely friends because we have been wrestling with this issue of surveillance over the last. I'm going to say year and a half, actually. Has it been that long? It's been a while. And wrestling is a good word. I think that's true. Yeah. And so here we are. You know, we talk about something completely different on the episode that we did with you on Radio Lab, which I'm hoping people will listen to. But on this show, I feel super conflicted about this, Jack, because on the one hand, you know, catching dangerous people before they do harm, that seems like a no brainer. But on the other hand, I feel really uncomfortable about law enforcement using technology that they don't want me to know that they have. I share that sense of ambivalence. I mean, because it it has a lot to do with how you talk about it. I mean, if you talk about it as, um, you know, we looked into a case where uh, police 
used Stingray to catch a rapist, but then because of the Fourth Amendment challenges, basically had to let him off. And in that context, I think, oh, they should be able to catch the rapist. I mean, come on. If you talk about it in that light, I, I somehow side with the police. If you think about, though, what the Stingray is actually doing, it's essentially as a police van is riding through a neighborhood and you know calling out and getting all these pings back, it's essentially reaching into the apartments of potentially thousands of people at once, which is creepy, frankly. It feels very invasive. So if you think of it that way, I switch sides and I think, no, this is, this is, this is not – Something we need. Okay, so let me put it to you this way. Let's say there's, um, oh, I don't know, something happens in Ferguson, Missouri, and there are protesters and the police start to use the stingray or technology like it to figure out who's protesting. I guess what I would hope is that uh, there's some kind of judicial oversight. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if they're making the call on their own, I'm not cool with that. And right now, only two states have passed laws requiring a warrant for using a stingray, and most other states require something, a much lower bar to pass or nothing at all. Mm-hmm. And on a personal note, now that you know that your phone, this device that knows you so intimately, now that you know that it's not necessarily secure, does what do you feel? I think I – part of me already knew that. Part of me already knew that it wasn't secure and that – Thank you, Edward Snowden. Yeah, it's even maybe it's Edward Snowden, uh, but maybe it, it's just. I mean, that's why we have them, right? So that we never have to be alone. We never have to be alone with our thoughts. So there's some way in which everything that's happening, we've already said yes to, even if we didn't explicitly say yes to it. So uh, it doesn't surprise me on that level. I tell you, what does surprise me? It surprises me on a technological level, but maybe in a deeper level that one policeman can find their way to one phone. Mm. If we think of it as our phones are not secure, I'm okay. But if my phone isn't secure, suddenly that 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 puts me in the like paranoid state of mind, maybe a tiny bit. But we like it that the one policeman can find his way to the one kidnapper's door who's got the kidnapped kid on the run. Like, yeah, cannot argue with that. That is exactly what's powerful about it. The same thing that creeps you out. Or, exactly. but what about after World War II when they used census data to find out where all the Japanese people were and put them in internment camps? Which isn't that different from sticking a stingray on the bottom of a plane and flying it over the protesters in Baltimore or Ferguson, which there are pretty good reports and evidence that that's what had happened. Hmm. So, yeah, where are we left? What do we do? Who, who, what, do we, what do we ask for here? We don't want it to be told how to beat this thing. Right, uh, right? right. We don't want all the criminals to know the secrets of how to beat it. And yet here we are talking about it. Yeah. I think that's the answer. I mean, we have to, at the risk of sounding Pollyanna-ish, we have to talk about it. Because mm-hmm. as long as you keep talking about it, then it's not set in stone. It's not considered just normal. Yeah. All right. I'm going to keep my phone on and I'm going to keep making <laughs> calls. And I'm going to keep location services too. enabled. Yeah. All right. Hey, truthfully, I love my phone. Okay, as I mentioned, we are really proud of our collaboration with Radiolab. Please check out the Radiolab show that we worked on together at radiolab.org. You can also hear my visit to Dayton, Ohio, to try and understand something called Eyes in the Skies, or that's what we called it anyway. 
It is fascinating technology and could be flying over you right now. And if you just can't get enough of Daniel Rigmaiden, he is actually starting to write a book about his whole Stingray experience. Find out more at stingraybook.com. The Note to Self team is Alex Goldmark, Ariana Tobin, Andrew Dunn, and me. If you're new to Note to Self, we hope you'll hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening to podcasts, because next week... Well, we're absolutely reaching a stage where not only does the way we do divorce need to change, but it is changing for many people. Our show is about how technology could change the way people get divorced. But could it also change the institution of marriage and how we think about commitment in the process? If you've got an idea or a question that you'd like us to tackle on an upcoming episode, or you want to let us know what you think about stingrays and other surveillance, send us an email, or even better, record a voice memo on your phone and send that to us. Or, you know, don't worry, surveillance, the FBI will get it anyway. Our email address is self at wnyc.org. We also love talking to you on Twitter and Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Manoush Samarodi, and this is Note to Self.